that uh, I haven't seen in a while. Uh, I've been able to, to be here to speak in the past once or twice, and I've always enjoyed uh, being able to be a part of the summer series here at the Savannah congregation. I think y'all have a great lineup for this coming summer, and I really hope that you put some effort into being here and being a part of these lessons as they fit together, uh, because I think that it's a really powerful opportunity for all of us to challenge uh, what we think uh, it means to be a highly effective Christian. Uh, when Barry called me and talked about uh, this particular theme and, and what he wanted to, to kind of concentrate on and how the different lessons would work out through the, through the summer, uh, I got really excited because this is a, a topic that is of particular interest uh, to me. I've actually spent every year, I've been preaching now for about 20, 21 years, and every year for about the past uh, 16 I have tried to have a theme that we focused on for the whole year, at least on Sunday mornings, so that we're not just coming together every week and saying, okay, let's figure out something to talk about. We've got somewhere that we're trying to get to. We're trying to accomplish a goal through the series of sermons, so it's not just a bunch of disconnected ideas. And there have probably been three of those years, three different series of sermons of about 50 lessons apiece that I would say fit into this topic or this subject of the habits that make a Christian effective. And if you want to have an effective faith, what do you need to have and what do you need to be and what do you need to be thinking about? So we're talking about 150 sermons we're talking about several books that I've read, several different authors and several different ideas that I've tried to explore just as a, a matter of personal interest. And so when Eric said that that's what you guys were going to talk about this summer, I said, well, I've probably got enough material for 45 minutes. So really all I'm going to do tonight is talk until they tell me to stop. And I know you're tired of hearing preachers do that, but I promise when they announce that we'll finish up, then we'll wrap it up. But I just want you to think about a couple of really important ideas that I've found through the years in studying this and studying the ideas of, of uh, spiritual discipline, of uh, being effective in our faith. Uh, we'll even look at some terms and some ideas that spell that out for us tonight. If this lesson were going to be presented in some college classroom somewhere, the fancy title would be The Practice of Righteous Living. But as we're talking about it tonight, the subtitle is, or the, the simple title is, You've Got to Be Right If You Want to Be Right. You've got to be right if you want to be right. Now when you stop and think about that, there's a, a, a bunch of different ways you can take that. And so I want to kind of unpack that idea a little bit and go a couple of those different directions with you tonight and, and try to paint a picture about why this is such a critical thing wherever you are in your stage as a Christian. I don't care if you've been a Christian for six months or if you've been a Christian for 60 years, there is material that will be extremely important that you can put into practice if you're interested. We talk about the highly effective, the, the, the seven habits of a highly effective Christian, the things that we practice, the practice of righteous living. Your practice 
must be right if you want to be right. When we talk about being right tonight, what does that mean? First of all, our practice, the concept of practicing. Of course, you know, we, we know that we use the word practice in different terms. I always struggled with the idea of going to a doctor who'd been practicing for 20 years. Shouldn't he be good enough by now that he doesn't have to practice anymore? But practice means more than what we do on the ball field in the summer months or in other things like that. What do they say about practice? Does practice make perfect? No, that's what they used to say, but now we realize that practice doesn't make perfect what? Perfect practice makes perfect. You've got to be practicing the right things if you want to get to the right area. If you want to be able to learn the right things. And so the Bible talks about different things that we practice. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to throw a lot of verses at you tonight, and I really hope to hear pages turn, or if you're using an electronic Bible, just make some noises. Boop, 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 boop. Let me know that your, you know, your phone or your tablet is going the right place. What does it say in 1 John chapter 3? Beginning in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. And then farther in verses 8 and 9, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. John will use the same kind of concept back in John chapter 8, the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John chapter 8, we see a similar uh, usage of this idea of practicing sin in John 8 and verse number 34. Here's a conversation Jesus is having with His listeners, with those who are following. And He says in John 8, 34, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so the idea of what we practice is these are the things that we are regularly in the habit of doing. Our habits. And so those who practice sin, they are the ones who are slaves to sin. In 1 John, he says, you don't need to be practicing sin. You don't need to be uh, caught up in that as a, a way of living. Instead, because otherwise you are a slave to sin. The converse of that, maybe we should have looked at these verses in, in another order, because back in 1 John chapter 1, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of someone who practices sin is someone who practices righteousness or as 1 John chapter 1 talks about it beginning in verse number 6, the one who walks in the light. If we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice, there's the word again, we do not practice the truth. What does it say in verse 7? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So we can practice unrighteousness or we can practice the truth. We can practice sin or we can practice walking in the light. Now, the easiest way to compare and contrast those two things is walking in sin, walking in darkness is committing sin and doing bad things, and walking in the light is not doing bad things. But that's wrong. That's false. That's a false dichotomy. Because people who walk in the light 
still sin. People who have a highly effective faith still sin. And so we don't need to look at this verse and this idea of saying we have fellowship with God and we walk in the light because we never sin. Because the verse itself argues against that. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and what does the blood of His Son do? Cleanses us from unrighteousness. Now, if we never committed sin, if we were never unrighteous, would we need the blood of Jesus to do that? No, we wouldn't. And so, the understanding now is, there are people who make a practice of sinning, and they do not walk in the light. And then there are people who still make mistakes... They still sin, but it is not their practice. It is not their habit. Their practice is walking in the light. And then occasionally, they continue to make mistakes. So the question is, what are you practicing? We sing that song during Vacation Bible School, don't we? I'm a hard-fighting soldier. And what's the second verse of that song talking about? That second verse of hard-fighting soldier says, well, you've got to walk right and talk right and sing right and pray right when you're on the battlefield. The practice of righteous living is making a habit of making the right choices even though we still make mistakes. In order to accomplish that, we have to become disciples. You see, we're going to talk about spiritual discipline. And discipline and disciple and discipleship are all from the same root word, the same idea here. In fact, one of the ancient definitions of a disciple was someone who had the dust of his master covering his feet. Now what that meant was it was the analogy of walking down the road with someone. Now I got to go a couple of years ago with Steve Worley uh, to Africa and we did some walking through the Sahara. And we wound up in the, the place we went in Chad. Uh, not a lot of paved roads, as I recall. Um, everything was dust. Everything was sand. And every time he went somewhere, he'd been there before, and I had not. So guess what I did? I was right there behind him. He got so sick and tired of me being underfoot that week that we were there together. But he didn't have much of a choice. Because I wasn't leaving his shadow. Because I was following wherever he went because I trusted that he knew what was going on even when I didn't. I didn't know where the buildings were. I didn't know where the house was that we were staying. I didn't know if that chicken over there was a good chicken or a bad chicken. So I stuck close to the person that I was following. A disciple in Jesus' day was someone who was so close behind their master that the dust from his sandals hadn't had time to settle back to the ground before his followers walked through it. And then the idea of discipline, that's the art of teaching. We talk about the the, the habits of an effective Christian. We're going to talk about the discipline that is required. The things that we must put into practice. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 talks about raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. A better translation or definition there is the whole training and education of children relating to cultivating their mind and their morals. The commands and admonitions, the reproofs and the punishments. So usually when we talk about disciplining a child, Paul even says, I discipline my body. We think about punishment, right? Discipline is usually punishment. That is not, that's only half of the issue. Real discipline is the art of teaching. 
And if we can teach through positive instruction, that's much better. But then sometimes we have to learn by the consequences, don't we? I remember telling my three-year-old son, Logan, over and over and over again, that that pretty blue light in the hallway furnace was to look at and not to touch. And I tried to convince him of that, but his little three-year-old self had to experience it for himself. And when he got the blister on his finger, he learned and it never happened again, did it? That's a hard lesson, but sometimes the consequences are the best lessons of all if we, can, if we can't avoid them. So discipleship then is about learning, the act of teaching. But here's the fact. Here's the important thing. Here's what Jesus wants you to remember. Jesus did not go about teaching so that He could fill your head with a bunch of information. Discipleship is not about informing. It's about transforming. And we've got to take that to heart. So many times we think, well, as long as I study my Bible, as long as I listen to the preacher, as long as I, you know, as long as I figure out this information and, and write down the points of this good sermon, uh, then everything's okay. But if that's all it does is remain up here, then it doesn't do any good. Jesus doesn't want you to be informed. He wants you to be transformed. And so we're going to talk about the rest of the night more than just the head. We're going to talk about how it has to be the heart as well. What does Proverbs chapter 21 say? In Proverbs 21 and verse 1, Turn my what? Heart, O Lord, like rivers of water. Turn my heart. You know how we know that this matters? You know how we know that it's more important to aim for the heart than it is to aim for the head? Just watch TV programs now and wait for the commercials to come on. You know, if you go back and you watch commercials that came on television back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the commercial came on and there was a spokesperson that would talk for the entire 30 seconds or 45 seconds about the benefits of their product. And it was, a, it was a spokesperson that you recognized. It was a spokesperson that you respected. But they told you the benefits of their product. And that is no longer what advertising is today. Advertisers do not care about giving you information anymore. Pay attention to the next time you have to watch commercials. If there's any information given in a commercial anymore, you know where it's found? It's fine print listed at the bottom. Because they want to get through that as quick as they can. They're not worried about that anymore. Advertisers now don't worry about information. They aim directly for our subconscious. They aim directly for our feelings. They convince us that we want something. Whatever that something is, they convince us that we want it. And the only way you're going to get it is with my product. That's all that matters. If you don't believe that's true... You can read some of these studies or you can just think about it yourself. Just how colors are used. You know, they found that when you see the color red, you get hungry. I don't know. They trace it back to caveman days and a, a good rare steak. I don't, know what, I don't know if that's true or not. But they do talk about how the color red tends to make people hungry. And you know what they did with that information? Look at every fast food restaurant that you can think of. Now, if we had the, you know, if we had a PowerPoint up here, I'd throw up those. But every, almost every fast food restaurant that you're going to pass on your way home tonight, 
somewhere is going to have what color in their sign? It's red. And they're not advertising, hey, you're hungry, hey, you're hungry, hey, you're hungry. But what they're doing is tapping into your heart, your subconscious. And they're trying to make you crave something. And then you think, hmm, you're just, you think you're just driving down the road. And you just all of a sudden get a honkering, hankering for an ice cream cone from... Or a hankering for a hamburger from... But you didn't get it. You drove by 87 restaurants and they bombarded you with this color. And that's all it took to shortwire your brain. Discipline is about recognizing some of those things and doing these things repetitively. I want you to turn to Second uh, Peter. If you're still in First John, it should just be a couple pages back. Second Peter chapter 1. When we talk about discipleship, when we talk about discipline, what are the things to do? What are the steps to take? And what I find interesting, what I find fascinating, is that there is a series of steps given in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7 through 7, that tell us the order. Not just here's a bunch of good things you need to do. You know, Peter over in Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit and, and those are all good things. And then there's other times when, you know, Jesus says you need to do these good things in your life. But Peter takes it to a whole new level. Because he says in Second Peter, well, in verse one, in chapter one and verse three, he says, God's divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Alright? Everything you need to be a highly effective Christian, God has given you. You've just got to know what to do with it. And so through his divine power. He has granted us all these things that pertain to life and godliness. Therefore, in verse 5, instead of therefore, it says, for this reason, for this very reason, you need to what? Add. Make every effort to supplement. That's the English Standard Version. Or add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, add knowledge. And to knowledge, add self-control. And to self-control, add steadfastness or endurance. And to steadfastness, add godliness. And to godliness, add brotherly affection, brotherly love. And to brotherly love, add agape, add love. For if these qualities, here's the word we're using for this summer, all summer long, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being what? Ineffective or unfruitful. If you want to be an effective Christian, then you're going to need to take these specific steps. You have to figure out where your faith is. You're going to have to add something to that faith. Faith is critical. It's essential. It's the first step. Without it, you can't go anywhere else. But it can't stay there. You've got to add to your faith. What does Peter say? Add virtue. Well, I don't even know what virtue is, Adam. Well, there you go. Now you go, you start to pursue the idea of virtue. What does it mean to be virtuous? I want to do the right thing. Even when I don't know what it is, I want to do the right thing. That's great. It's good to want to be right. That's the title of our lesson. You've got to be right if you want to be right. I want to be right. That's virtue. You know what happens next? We run into a wall and we say, I want to do what's right, but I don't know how. And what's the third step? What's the third thing? After faith and virtue, go out and seek knowledge. 
See, it all builds naturally one on top of the other. And the longer you spend with this series of steps, the more sense it begins to make as you're being discipled, as you're being disciplined to, to climb upward through these different ideas as a Christian. But living right, being right, it's more than just practicing. It's more than just knowing. Because again, knowledge is there, but knowledge is only the third thing in the list. After knowledge, there are still a series of other things that have to be done. It's more than knowing right. It's more than doing right. It's about being right. Knowledge is the third thing in a list of eight. In 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, this is a verse that changed a lot of my perspective on things. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 talks about knowledge. And we usually prize knowledge as we should. But Paul has a warning about knowledge in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Concerning food offered to idols, we know, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And then Paul says this, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Wow. Knowledge is great. In fact, we're not arguing that you don't need knowledge. We're not arguing that you need less knowledge. What we're arguing is you need knowledge and then something. Knowledge itself is not enough. There was a G.I. Joe cartoon used to come on. I'm dating myself here just a little bit. But the G.I. Joe cartoon came on Saturday morning. And at the end of the cartoon, there's always a lesson. I wish cartoons had better lessons today. I'd feel more comfortable about my kids watching them than I do. They've still got lessons, they're just not good lessons. But at the end of the G.I. Joe cartoon, there was always some good lesson, some good moral that they wanted to instill. And then they would always say at the end, knowing is half the battle. Knowing is half the battle. And that's great. But if you're half prepared for a battle, you're going to lose. Knowing matters. Knowing gets you halfway there. But you've got to add to it. That's why Jesus spends so much time in the Sermon on the Mount hitting the head and the heart. Isn't that what He does? The, 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 the phrase that repeats itself. After He introduces with the Beatitudes, He's like, let me turn everything upside down. The people who are blessed are the poor in spirit. The people who are blessed are those that mourn. The people who are blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And, and He goes to those things and He says, you don't understand what it means to be blessed because you haven't put this into practice really in your life. And then he introduces a phrase, you have heard it was said to those of old. And in almost every one of those instances, you have heard that it was said, he attacked or he mentioned or he emphasizes what they did. Some action that they did. And then he follows it up with, but I say to you, and he emphasizes or he hits or he stresses what we are. What's on the inside. You see the difference? So we can go through the motions, we can do good things on the outside, but that doesn't always translate to being right on the inside. And there's that difference. Turn to Titus chapter 1. Turn to Titus chapter 1. Here's where we begin to, to, to get to the point where the rubber meets the road, if you'll let me use that phrase. 
Here's how the seven habits of a highly effective Christian, here's where spiritual disciplines really start to make an impact in our lives. Because if we want to be right, we've got to be right. Not just do right. What does Paul tell Titus in Titus chapter 1 and verse number 15? To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Detestable, disobedient, and unfit for good work. In other words, when I read this idea in Titus chapter 1 and verse 15, when we are pure internally, then it is a lot easier to do pure things. Does that make sense? And that's where we begin to get into the difference between what we know and what our heart tells us. It's not that information is bad. We don't need less information, but we need more. Proverbs 23 and verse 7. As a man thinks, right? Proverbs 23 and verse 7, but fill in the blank. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's more than just what you carry around up here. It's the way that your heart guides and leads. It is an orientation internally. Your heart... There's a couple of really good illustrations that I got from some of the books that I read. One of them was a beach ball. Your heart is like a beach ball. And you take that beach ball and you carry it to the bottom of a swimming pool. And you let it go. What's that beach ball going to do? Shoots back up to the surface. Why is that? Because that's where a beach ball wants to be. A beach ball wants to be at the top of the water. You take a five-pound weight and you let it go at the top of the water and where's it going to go? It's sinking to the bottom. You take a magnet, right? If I take a magnet and I've got a piece of metal over here and I've got a piece of wood over here, what's that magnet going to do? It's going to be drawn toward the thing that attracts it. And friends, no matter what we say, we believe. No matter what we claim to be our faith, the magnet of your heart draws you to what you are attracted to. And that is what we have to work on. That's what we have to try and recalibrate. You know, I like the uh, analogy of a compass. A compass works on magnetic fields, right? And I don't know all the science behind that, but I do know that it works on magnets. And the compass is supposed to be able to tell you which direction you're headed. Your heart has to be right. The orientation of your heart has to be right. But do you know what I found out? I learned something. I got that GPS in my car, right? My car has that little GPS. Some of you have a compass maybe in the mirror or on the dash somewhere. For one reason or another, I don't really know how it happens, but that compass can be off. That compass can be wrong. I'm not sure what it is that does that. But your phone, you know, has a compass in it sometimes. And if your GPS on your phone stops working, I don't know if you've ever had to do this before, they'll tell you, your phone will take you through a little tutorial. It'll say the compass is is wrong and we need to recalibrate it. So you have to take it and hold it up and you have to like fly it like an airplane. 
And they tell you to do these figure eight circles in the air while it figures out where the north and south and east and west is. You have to go through that. And you look kind of silly when you do that with your phone, but let me tell you what you look really silly doing, driving around in a parking lot in your car in those big figure eights because your car says, okay, we got to recalibrate your compass. Drive around in circles till we tell you to stop. And so you wind up in the church parking lot or the Walmart parking lot and you're just driving around in circles because you have to recalibrate the compass. Otherwise, it's going to direct you the wrong way. We are what we love, not what we know. Now, I don't have to explain that very much. All I have to do is remind you of the times when you knew better and you did it anyway. And I think everybody in this room can, can, familiar, can be familiar with that idea. You knew you weren't supposed to. You knew it wasn't a good idea. You knew it wasn't best for you. You knew it wasn't going to get you where you needed to be, but you just couldn't help yourself. The pull, the magnetic pull, the attraction was too strong and you couldn't escape the gravitational force and you wound up over here when you knew all along, I should be going that way, I should be going that way. And here we are. You are what you love, not what you know. So knowing is not enough. Knowing is half the battle. But then we have to recalibrate our heart as well. The power of routine allows us to do that. We form habits in our lives based on what we do repetitively. When you do something over and over and over and over again, you change the physical and chemical makeup of your brain. Alright? You literally change the way your brain works and you begin to develop shortcuts in your brain that tell me this is what I'm supposed to be doing. How many of you, well, I don't want to see a show of hands, how many of you got to church tonight driving your vehicle and you stepped back and you, if you stepped back to think about it said, you know, I really don't remember making the last three turns. Ever happened to you before? Maybe driving on a long trip or just coming home from work? Because you drive the exact same route every single day. You do it over and over again and you have done it over and over again. So it is natural. It is your default mode. And so you're thinking about what you're going to have for supper or you're wondering, is the guy coming to speak tonight any good at all? Am I going to have to pay attention to him or can I do something different? And all the while, you're subconscious, well, it's making the turn here and it's merging here and it's pulling in the parking lot here and it parked there and, and you didn't even have to think about it. Most of us don't have to stop and think about tying our shoes in the mornings when we put our shoes on. I know that's not true for all of us. That's okay. But most of us, we can tie our shoes and our fingers know what to do while our brain is thinking about something else because we are in default mode. Habits form who we are. See, what's funny is we start off making our habits, but then our habits wind up making us. And that's what happens. They become routine. The routine becomes a rut. The rut becomes the only way we know how to deal with things. And then we're confronted with a need to do it differently. And we don't know what to do. When was the last time you were on a road you had never been on before? Just stop and think about that for a second. 
For most of us, our routines are so established and so set that we are on the same roads every day of our lives. Maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, we have an opportunity to go somewhere we've never gone before or do something we've never done before, and all of a sudden we're in strange and unfamiliar territory. But most of our life is spent following the routines that we have established for ourselves. And as long as they're good routines, that's fine. But sometimes they're not. Sometimes we've been taking shortcuts. Sometimes we've been uh, skipping over doing the hard work so that we can cut corners and do the easy work and we failed to develop the way that we should because we're not doing the right routine. I love this quote from Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee says, Don't fear the man who has practiced a thousand kicks once. Fear the man who's practiced one kick a thousand times. You better believe that. Routine gives us the ability to reorient our compass. See, your heart is going to be pulled towards the things you love the most. Doesn't matter what you say you love. Doesn't matter what you say you worship. And by the way, we're going to talk about worship now. Worship is really the expression of your love. That is what worship is. Worship is expressing the love and adoration. And so your heart must be right if you're going to love the right thing. Let's look at John again. Go to John chapter 1. Man, this is such a powerful point. In John chapter 1, the first question Jesus asks in the book of John comes in John chapter 1, verse 38. In John 1, 38, some people come up to Jesus... And they're following Him and Jesus turns around and saw them following and says to them, What are you seeking? Or if you let me update that, what do you want? What do you want? What's one of the last questions that John writes down for Jesus in John 21? If you skip to the end of the book, John chapter 21, verse number 16. There's this discussion. It takes place on a beach. And Peter needs some redemption, right? And what does Jesus ask Peter? Not once, not twice, but three times. Peter, do you what? Love me. What do you want, Peter? Do you want me? Then you've got to feed my sheep. Do you love me? then you've got to feed my sheep. You are what you love. That's why Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. See, that's what Proverbs is trying to get us to see. We think of the book of Proverbs just being a list of do's and don'ts, but Proverbs is all about reorienting our heart, changing the magnetic draw and desire of what our heart is. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We sing the song from Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. Beautiful song. talks about the importance of desire. As the deer... Pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Is your heart pulled towards God in that way? 
Is that where the attraction is? Or is there something that the magnet of your heart is more attracted to that draws you away from God instead? Because here's what stinks. You can't choose to not love anything at all. You're going to love something. Your heart is going to pull you towards something. That's why Joshua, when he's got the children of Israel there and he's, he's telling them about the blessings and the cursings, and he says, choose you this day whom you'll serve. You know, in the famous verse we know, you know, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. But he says, you can choose whom to serve. You can serve the gods of the Egyptians where you were slaves. You can serve the gods that your father served in the land across the river. You can serve the gods that these pagans worship now, the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Amorites. Or you can serve Jehovah. But nowhere does he say, or you can choose not to serve anything. That don't work. You cannot help but love and worship and serve something. The question is, what will it be? And so we have to look very deeply inside and see what is it that we're drawn to and what can I do about that. And that's where worship comes into play. If you want to be right, then your worship helps the heart to be right. That's why worship is supposed to be regular and repetitive. The reason God calls us to assemble on the first day of every week and the reason in the book of Acts that they got together far more frequently than that was because they recognized that habits are formed by doing something over and over and over again. There is no question about where I will be on Sunday morning because if my legs work and if the doctor hasn't told me that I need to be home, I'm going to be with God's people because that is what I do. There is no equivocation about that. There is no question about that. And if I'm going to be traveling away from home at some point and I find myself away from home on Sunday, I am going to find a place or a way to worship because that is what I do. That is the habit that I do not break. You see what I'm saying? And so right worship allows us to follow our heart in the right way. Where is your heart pointing? We get lost if we're not following the compass. An illustration I used... Well, I won't, I won't use it because we don't have time. It was a good illustration though too. I'm sorry. <laughs> not just worship. What do you do repetitively? What habits do you do repetitively, repeatedly habitually to keep you going in the right direction. And you know, that's why Bible study and prayer are so ridiculously simple, but so critical to your ability to remain a faithful, effective Christian. You have got to be about the business of regular, repeated Bible study and prayer. You will not, you cannot be an effective Christian without being dedicated to those two things. Now there will be lessons throughout the course of this summer that will help highlight different ways to do that. There's no one right way to be better at praying. And there's no one right way to be better at studying your Bible. There's different ways to accomplish that that work for you. Just like everybody has different learning styles and some people are auditory learners and some people are tactile learners and some people are memorization learners. Everybody has a different style. You can find the way that works for you and your family that continually and repetitively puts prayer and Bible study in your life. 
most important thing that we can do to recalibrate our heart is summed up in the greatest command. When the lawyer came and asked Jesus, what's the great command? Jesus said, oh no, all Scripture is equal. Is that what He said? No. He said, the greatest command is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In other words, the whole package. It's not just what you know. You've got to be wrapped up completely in it. And then the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's got to translate into what you do Monday through Saturday. Because if you don't take the principles that you learn in a good, right worship service and apply them to the way that you look at and treat the people around you in your home and at work and at school and at the grocery store, you haven't learned the lessons. So learn them. And we're done. Thank you all very much.